0: So, on my smartphone, I have some pictures, just a few. Since I didn't want to use up the chips that it would cost me to show a picture of my wife, I had to settle for one of me just before I was, uh, well, to quote a friend of mine, the picture was taken in honor of him, pulled through a knothole backwards. It's a favorite expression he has. But on my smartphone, I also have, not just one, not just two, Three picture editing apps. All of them free, just saying. But they allow me to edit the tone or the tint of the pictures that I take. I can filter what I see, how I see that scene. One of those apps has these different categories. Brightness, contrast, saturation, ambiance, highlights, shadows, warmth. Another one has categories like this, original, vivid, vivid, warm, vivid, cool, dramatic, dramatic, warm, dramatic, cool, mono, silver tone, or noir. We all have a filter through which we're looking at the picture of the year ahead. And that filter changes as we're looking at different things, doesn't it? But there's one that dominates. What is the name of the dominant filter The default tint as you look at the year ahead. More specifically, how dominant is the filter you would call fear? Do we even realize in a moment how much fear is the filter with which we have colored the picture? And fear is the dominating way that we relate to people and react to situations. I read an article this week that began with this line. It has not been a good week for anyone frightened about the future of the planet. Now that wasn't written by an ultra-conservative conspiracy theorist with an alarmist bent. It was in the Globe and Mail written by a mature mainstream journalist. Intentional journalistic hyperbole to grab attention? Well, to some degree, certainly. But there are things in every realm of life that surface fear. What this author was talking about, the global political instability and and polarization that's led to fear of the bomb being put back on the table. Who would have thunk it even two years ago, right? Climate change and the environment. The changing moral climate around us. And perhaps more personally, family and health concerns. Financial uncertainty, job insecurity, we all have our own list. If it was just one thing, we could handle it. But it's one more thing on top of all the others that does us in. Some of us are just refusing to allow ourselves to think about the list because it's too depressing. And the fact that we are not thinking about the list and just living in la-la land just adds a worry factor to be added to our partner's list. Okay, if you're that partner, just go ahead. Right now, look at your partner and nod your head and say, see? Right? As we read the book of Psalms, it's not hard to resonate with the cry of the psalmist when he says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is a way of expressing the source of a lot of our fear, isn't it? We have tried hard to develop foundations under us, but nothing seems to go our way. And any foundation we thought was there seems to be eroding away or even exploding apart. Optimism, realistic optimism, is not an easy sell as we look into the coming year. So what do we do? Good question. I was sitting one evening a number of years ago with a 21-year-old man on a beach on an uninhabited island in the Sea of Cortez off the Baja coast of Mexico on a seven-day sea kayaking trip, having, having just watched a magnificent sunset from a beach on a secluded bay. Could not get a more idyllic setting. He was our guide on this adventure, and I knew he had some underlying fear that the educational foundation that he'd been building for four years would not lead to a job. This trip was part of his educational foundation. And he realized after several years of maturing that the glitz and fun of the course he had chosen was not something that would lead to the kind of lifestyle he wanted. And as I sat with him on the beach after the sun had set, I felt grieved for him that the the beauty of the moment was lost to him because of the weight of the future. There was an underlying fear, something deeper than just a spur-of-the-moment fright that had become pervasive to the point that it was becoming paralyzing. I I tried to help him see that even though the specific degree he was getting might not be the area in which he wanted to work, there were plenty of courses that he was taking that that were transferable, that were like foundational courses for other things. But my logic didn't seem to help, and just listening wasn't helping either. As you look ahead to this year, is that not a picture that describes some of your fear? The same book of the Bible, the Psalms, that asks that question, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That same book also helps us learn how to process that question well. And one of the ways it does that is through a repeated word picture, an image that we need to work into our thinking to allow our to to allow it to take over our perspective when it seems like the foundations underneath us are eroding or even exploding, when there appears to be nothing for us to build on, when we don't know what it is we need to work on because we don't see anything we can work from. It's a picture of a foundation that is there that cannot be removed or moved, a rock that is true bedrock that cannot and will not be moved, Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 62, truly he is my rock and my salvation, he is my fortress, I will never be shaken, truly he is my rock, he is my mighty rock. Four times in Psalm 62, rock, 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 rock. Another Psalm. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This month, for the next four Sundays, our central theme, the core prayer, we'd like to teach ourselves to pray is, Lord, rock my world. When it seems like my world is being rocked, help me to know that underneath me is a bedrock that cannot be removed, that I am secure in you and in you alone. You see, It could be argued that the two biggest headspace challenges in life are number one, making sure that the foundation on which I am building my thinking is truly solid enough to bear the weight of everything that life might throw at me. And number two, to see and count on that foundation when the things we tend to think of as foundations are stripped away or don't just seem to be happening like we think we should. They should. You know how I know those are central? Do you remember the central teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and how it ends? It ends with a word picture. You guessed it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, says Jesus, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds, wind blew against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on The rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Do you see how Jesus is making the foundations issues, the central issue? Jesus is summarizing the answer to that question of the psalmist. When it appears the foundations are being destroyed, the first thing you have to do is check whether you're building on the right foundation. And counting on that foundation that is there when everything else erodes. This morning, as we introduce this theme, we're going to work our way through a psalm that I would encourage you to memorize this month. It's an easy one. Only eight verses. A psalm to guide and to help you guard your headspace when the foundations around you seem to be eroding and causing you fear. Would you turn to Psalm Oh, sorry, I'll have those on there for a little bit. Uh, Psalm 121. Psalm 121. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you have a Bible app, turn there. If you don't have a Bible app, haul out your smartphone, download a Bible app, you'll have time as I talk here. Now, as you read it, you won't hear the word rock. But it talks about a parallel image in which, which in many ways portrays the same idea. Hills, mountains, solid, immovable, So we think. You see, mountains for the psalmist present an interesting dilemma, a confusing collision of thoughts, as we're going to see. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains, the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not As you have noticed, uh, if you've turned to it in your Bible, Psalm 122 is, is called a song of ascents. What this probably means is that these were songs, it, it, it's, it's a group of, there's a group of psalms, 15 of them, 120 to 134, that were called songs of ascent. And, and what it probably means is that these were songs that people would sing on their journey to Jerusalem for key worship festivals. There were three, at least, key festivals every year that faithful people from all over Israel would, would come to celebrate in Jerusalem. And from wherever you would journey in Israel, Jerusalem was up. A long ways up from some places. They literally had to go up to Jerusalem. And, and it was not at all an easy up. There were steep coolies with narrow paths and as they were going along on this journey to help them keep their head straight and to get their heart pumped up for the festival, they would sing these songs—the songs of ascent. Let's walk through this psalm and see how it helps us keep our head straight and our heart warm for the journey ahead of us this year. I will lift up my eyes. Sorry, I'm. This, this is my fault. Nobody else's fault here. There we go. I will lift up my eyes. The first question I need to ask myself when I feel like the foundations are being destroyed is how do I see? We need to bring to our conscious sight what it is we're seeing. But even more important than what it is we are seeing is how we are seeing what we are seeing. What is the tone, the filter we have put on the picture which we have imposed on the picture And that's the driving question for today, by the way. How am I seeing? As we lift up our eyes, we we begin to see a bigger picture. And some of us are saying, exactly, that's what I'm doing. I am seeing the bigger picture, and that is what is scaring me. Okay, That's that's a good first step. But even in saying that, what you're talking about is what you're seeing. Which still brings up the question, how are you seeing what you're seeing? Actually, if you, if you had this discussion with the psalmist and with the pilgrims who would use their psalm on this journey, and you told them that you were looking at the big picture and that's what scares you, what do you think the psalmist would have said to you? Or the journeyer, she would have said, exactly, that is exactly the point. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Do you know what the psalmist sees as he sees hills? Not what we see in central Alberta. Not too long after we moved to Edmonton, LaDonna and I were driving to Medicine Hat to visit our son and his wife. And, and to get to know our adopted province, we decided to take one of the alternate routes down. And we're driving along and she was having a nap. At one point I woke her up and I said, Honey, look, quick, look. She woke up and she said, What am I looking at? And I pointed and I said, see, one, two, three. She looked intensely and said, what? I said, three, three hills. Well, at least two and a half. She looked a bit more and she said, no. Are you kidding me? I said, nope. And I pointed to the sign that said three hills, two kilometers or five kilometers, whatever it was. She had grown up hearing about three hills. We had friends who had lived in three hills. Three hills. That's not what she saw in her mind. You see, three hills rhymes with ski hills. She said you wouldn't even be able to get a toboggan to move down those hills. Now there're two ways of thinking when we see the psalmist looking at the hills. When when we read it on the surface it might seem like the psalmist as he looked at the hills he might immediately be saying to himself, it's okay. Don't worry. The world is solid, stable, secure. Look at the beauty. There's nothing to fear except fear itself. That's not what the psalmist sees as he sees the hills, the mountains. The hills this traveler saw were were not quite Mount Robson, but neither were they three hills. For a journeyer on his way to Jerusalem, the hills were not just an image of security. If If you've heard Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan, you will realize what the hills meant for a traveler to Jerusalem. Jesus uses this parable because everyone had either journeyed either to Jerusalem from Jericho or from Jerusalem to to Jericho. And they could identify with Jesus' story. It was their worst nightmare when they thought of the hills between Jerusalem and Jericho. The hills, the very things that should represent stability and security, were the places in which bad men would hide, and from which really bad men would appear, jump you, beat you up, and rob you. Wild men and ferocious animals had always been a danger on the road to Jerusalem. Everyone had a story about someone who had been jumped on the way to Jerusalem or on the way home from Jerusalem. That's why they generally traveled in groups Protection, by the way, let me just say, that's why we all need to journey life in groups together. That's why we have groups here at Ellerslie. As the psalmist journeys, he, he faces his fear head on. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, but what I see in those hills will not make me afraid because as I look at those hills, I see something more than those hills. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come my help comes from the Lord. And right now, I need my help to come from some tech who's going to help me figure out how I can advance this. There we go. Uh, my help comes from the Lord. Oh, man. Mel. <laughs> I, I got a new clicker, and it, 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 I always click the wrong thing. My, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from the one who made those very hills and everything underneath and around those hills, the maker of heaven this earth. From this psalm I'd like us to leave this morning with two filters that we can lay on the picture that we have that will not change the details of the picture but will totally color it with a hue that can actually make it beautiful even though in its original view it might inspire fear. Two ways that we can actually leverage fear, things that fear of the future can actually point us to, and help us develop that confidence in the future rarely does. Two ways that we can leverage fear of the future to, to give us a deeper confidence than if we were naively confident about what's in them dar hills. Number one, fear of the future can help us remember what the journey really is. When I'm afraid of what's ahead on the journey, I need to ask myself, what's, what journey am I really on? So what is the journey you're on? What was the journey this pilgrim was on? It was a journey to Jerusalem, the city of God. See, the real journey God invites me on, the journey of life, is a journey to himself. We were created to walk with God and toward God. We have abandoned that journey and taken detours. And and when we think about God, we tend to think that we are inviting God onto a journey with us. To help us become more successful or happy in whatever direction we choose, right? That's not the journey. The journey is a journey to and with God. The journey I'm on is not about financial security, so why am I worried about, so worried about financial setback? The journey I'm on is not about career success, so why am I so afraid of a step down the ladder or that I won't get the step up the ladder that I've been pushing for this year? The journey I'm on is not about personally fulfilling relationships, so why am I allowing myself to get so eaten up by losing or not finding perfect relationships? The journey I'm on is not about creating the perfect family portrait. So why do I have to be so controlling when I see things happening to my family or with my family? That's not what I'd like. Oh yes, there are things that make me sad. Things that might not be the way I know they could be or should be. But it does not have to dominate my picture. So right now, can I ask you to think about what that thing is? The fear factor in your mind as you look ahead this year. Put it in front of you. Look at that dangerous hill. That fear-inducing mountain. Now ask yourself two questions as you look at that hill. Number one. Am I using my fear of that hill, of what's in that mountain, what could come from that mountain to point me to the God who is bigger than, who is behind, who is beyond that hill? Am I leveraging that fear for a good thing? And number two, how can I use that hill to remind myself that the journey I'm on, is not a journey to conquer that hill, to make it over that hill, to find a way around that hill. That's not the journey I'm on. The journey I'm on is a journey to God, a journey with God, who will guide me in whatever way He wants me to do to take that to, to, to deal with that hell. That's what I really want. Is that how you're looking at the mountain that is causing you fear, that is causing you frustration? The mountain in your rear view mirror that symbolizes your failure and just can't ever seem to get away, you can't ever seem to get away from? You see, the mountains of the world around us that we can see feel, and that our senses interact with can be so dramatic and beautiful that we're attracted to them way too much. They become our destiny. They can look so permanent and solid and dominant that we trust in them too much. They can become so dangerous that we fear them way too much. And sometimes it's important in the journey of life to be disappointed by To be frightened by the mountain in the picture. To call us back to the real journey that God has us on. And what happens when that is how the psalmist looks at the hills and redefines his journey? He, He realizes that the journey to God must be a journey with God. He begins to think about who, if there really is a God, who he must be and who he has proven himself to be. Three things about who God is on his journey that he just sees right away that removes his fear. He is a God of the past, the creator God of the past. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of not just those hills, but of everything above those hills, around those hills, and under those hills. Psalm 46, even though the mountain that looked so secure was whipped into the heart of the sea. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So be still and know that I am God. Last summer we took our grandchildren to to see Mount St. Helens. It was unbelievably awesome to sit there and see the crater six miles away and realize that what was the peak of that mountain got blown out sideways And traveled over six miles through the air. I just stood there and tried to fathom it. There's no promise from God that the mountain you're counting on for stability, the mountain you're climbing for success, isn't gonna come crashing down. There's no promise from God that what you're afraid of won't happen from that mountain or in that mountain. If what you're looking for is a guarantee that what you're afraid of won't happen, you won't progress in the real journey you're on. If your whole focus is on keeping those foundations secure, you will be frustrated, you will be angry. The promise from God is that He has made even that mountain and He will never leave you or forsake you. He will bring you home if your journey is really to Him. Because the God who in the past by His power has made that mountain I am afraid of, He is also the God of the the present, for me and with me, protecting me. What does he do? He protects me in my journey over that mountain, around that mountain, and through that mountain. Every, every once in a while, I will uh, overhear my wife as she listens for a long time to someone who has become controlled by fear. After listening for a while, there comes a point where she graciously but firmly shifts the direction of the conversation slightly, and, and what she says is something like this. You know, all of those things might be true You could very well be right, but the problem is those things are driving your bus. It's time for you to get back in the driver's seat and start driving the bus, controlling that inner dialogue. Listen to the way the psalmist works with his mind to deal with his fear the way he takes control of his inner dialogue. Self, he says, look at those mountains. And what they must tell you about the power of the God who made those mountains, what it means is that as great as His power is, that is how great His care must be. Now, for you, He will not let your foot slip. You see, there are places on that journey through the mountains where the trail is treacherous, steep and narrow, with a deadly drop if your foot slips. As I was trying to process in my mind this week the, that image and, and what that must mean, I, I, I remembered... An experience I had a number of years ago, I was, I was in Bolivia uh, visiting a friend who was a mission leader there, and he lived in Cochabamba, but while I was there, he needed to take a trip to the capital of Bolivia, La Paz. We took a, an overnight bus from Cochabamba to La Paz, which is high up in the Andes Mountains, right at the edge of Lake Titicaca. I didn't sleep that much that night, it, at, at first it was because the TVs on the bus were blaring. Watched three Rambo movies that night, First Blood and two other ones, and uh, with the Spanish volume, or the, the voiceover volume in Spanish blaring so loudly, uh, but I'm sure that eventually I could have fallen asleep like the fr- my friend beside me, had it not been for a fateful one-minute conversation with my friend. At one point, after several hours of driving, he woke up briefly and... Uh, and I said, we must be getting into the mountains. The engine was working a little harder. I could feel it slow down just a bit as it went around turns. And he smiled quietly and said, yep, yeah, we're halfway there. And in my touristy excitement, I said to him, man, Andy's Mountains. I wish, I, I, I wish we could be taking it this in daytime so I could, I'd, I'd love to see the scenery. And, smiled and he, he smiled and said, or not. And then he added, there's a reason they take it at night. And suddenly, the images of what I'd read of Bolivian roads in the Andes as I'd read up on Bolivia came to my mind. The road we were on was not Death Road, where 300 people die every year. That was just on the other side of the valley we are on. <laughs> I never did get to sleep that night. I prayed a lot. You see, I sometimes think that if we could really see the dangers of the road we're traveling, we'd, we'd never leave the house. Right? Last Sunday. We're driving down a street in Edmonton. We drive around, drive down every week. Suddenly, boom! No fault of my own. Car was totaled. Our car, totaled. Brand new. Written off. For the next 24 hours, my wife, with her analytical mind and her evalu- evaluation-oriented bent, she kept replaying that scene in her mind trying to figure out some way she could instruct me on what I could do differently so it wouldn't happen again. <laughs> finally, she said, you know... I have replayed that scene a hundred times in my mind the last 24 hours, and trying to think of some defensive driving technique that could have saved us, I couldn't think of one. I said, thank you, dear, I think. (laughs) Uh, That that is sort of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? I guess. I I don't know if, if you've been on mountain trails where one slip could mean death. They're real. And the fact is, our foot could slip. And it's worth remembering as we read this phrase in the psalm, that there's another psalm that talks about feet slipping. Psalm 73. He doesn't blame it on God. Usually it's our fault when a foot slips. As for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold because, internal dialogue, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When our feet slip, it's so easy to blame God, but usually it's because of what our eyes have been focusing on. Because of how we are seeing. It's why the Lord's prayer says, lead me not into temptation. In other words, may I not allow myself to be led into places where my feet will slip. This psalm is not saying that God will not allow anything bad to happen to us. He says, look down at verse 8, the last word, the Lord will watch over your life. That word life is not talking just about our physical bodies. It's not... It's talking about our big picture life. This word is most often translated soul. Not just a certain immaterial part of my being. It's talking about the real me. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When was the most dangerous time in the mountains for this traveler? At night. When you can't see what's coming at you. Animals and thieves had the advantage But the psalmist says, I can go to sleep because my God does not sleep. When we're driving, my wife will often say, are are you sleepy or can I have a nap? She doesn't sleep much. (laughs) But we don't have to do that with God. He not only protects me from making a wrong move from the marauders and animals, he not only protects me all day long, he protects me from the elements The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Are you seeing the journey? Are you looking at the future in light of the God who really is and who really is with you? The God who in the past created all things and the present protects me in and through all things is also the God of the future who preserves me for my wonderful destiny with Him. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. Every once in a while, when I do not seem to be appropriately concerned about something that my wife is really concerned about, She will say to me, you're not even worried, are you? Her tone of voice tells me she is not envying my lack of worry. She's not affirming my lack of worry. Nor is she admiring my lack of worry. In her tone of voice is a hint of frustration, perhaps laced with a little bit of chastisement. Well, she used to say that, but she doesn't anymore. At first I thought it was because she had learned from my example and stopped worrying. But then I realized it was probably because one too many times when she said that, my response was, why do I need to worry when you are? If you worry, I don't have to. You've got all the risks covered, figured out. We're well covered. That's not how a good husband instills confidence in his wife, but... That is how God invites us to think about Him. When I am in the hands of the God who created even the mountains that contain some clear and present dangers, I am also in the hands of the God who watches over my journey through those mountains and He will bring me home. How would you look differently at the hill that's dominating your vision if you allowed that hill to force you to look further, look deeper, look to the God who created those hills, who journeys with you through those hills and the God who will bring you home? The psalmist can be pretty confident about what he's saying. Because as he sees those dangerous hills, he has another filter, a third one. He has a filter of knowing that the God he worships is the God who has met his people in those hills before This psalmist, you see, has a spiritual history that gives him a spiritual memory and it gives him a new filter through which he can see those dangerous mountains. He's the God this psalmist knows who met Moses on Mount Sinai and revealed to him his grand law but also his promise of grace. He's the God who would meet Elijah on Mount Carmel when he had enough of seeing the fear of God's people, and he climbs this mountain, Mount Carmel, to challenge the pagans who claimed that mountain for their god Baal. And he challenges Baal to a god contest on that mountain. Remember how Elijah mocked them when Baal did not come and light the fire? Maybe he's sleeping. Shout louder. That's why this psalmist can say he doesn't sleep or slumber. And God came down, met his people on the mountain with vengeance and with victory. And before all of that, he is the God who took Abraham to these hills to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And when it was apparent to God that Abraham fully trusted every command of his and was prepared to sacrifice even his son, God preserved him and said, I will provide on the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. This pilgrim knows that the mountains, although they are dominant and dangerous, are also the place where God's presence can be most powerful if we recognize what our journey is, a journey to God, trusting him and knowing him. The psalmist knows all of that, But what the psalmist does not see and does not know is how powerful and how complete what he believes really is that someday at the very mountain, the hilltop to which he is journeying, the creator God himself will enter humanity, would carry a cross on his beaten and bruised body and would climb that hill face the ultimate enemy of all humanity who would allow himself to be crushed for my iniquity, defeated in my place, and who in his death would defeat death itself so that by his wounds I could be healed fully and finally. You see, we have a true third filter. We have known and been joined in our journey by the God of See. Mount Calvary. And this one who made the lonely journey up that hill for us has commanded us to celebrate his journey regularly and his victory. Why? To remind us that the maker of heaven and earth, the God beyond those mountains, has come. He has become the God of Hill Sea to give me life. He has come so that when I see the mountain in front of me, a bad boss, a very immature spouse, a very uncooperative child, a very ill-directed government. I see something bigger in, above, and beyond that mountain that removes all fear. I was talking to a young man recently who now that he's married and settled down was doing the responsible thing and with the help of a financial advisor was, was planning his future financially. Good thing to do. And that involved getting some life insurance And in applying for life insurance, he had to give a medical history of his family. And the agent was going through the ticky boxes, you know, um, history of blood pressure, no. Heart disease, no. Kidney disease, no. Cancer. And the young man stumbled. And he looked at his wife because his father had had a cancer scare. He looked at his young wife who was starting to smile because she had just figured out what was going on. She said to him, "Uh I think they're talking about your genetic family history, not your adoptive family." He stared at her for a few seconds and then smiled sheepishly. "You see, his adoptive family history so it dominated his memory that he did not even think in light of his genetic history. Listen to what Paul says. In Galatians chapter 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, buy back those who were crushed under the mountain of the law that we might receive adoption into full status as sons. Do you see what that means? Because of the God of Hill Sea, Mount Calvary, I have A spiritual history with a whole new spiritual memory through which I can filter everything in my past, everything in my present, and everything that is coming at me in my future. Folks, every one of us has mountains in our vision that dominate our thinking, that that distort our perspectives. And they could represent very real and present dangers. The question is not whether those mountains are real. The question is what mountain is dominating your thinking, shaping your memory, coloring how you see What you see, is it Hill Sea, Mount Calvary? As the servers are coming forward, I I would like us to to invite us to participate in this ceremony. And as we do so, would you process, as we have time to reflect, these two questions? Number one, have I allowed what happened on Hill Sea, Calvary, to give me a new spiritual identity with a whole new memory? as a son of God. Have I walked into that life and accepted it through Jesus? That's what this represents. If you want to say yes to that for the first time, take it. Say yes to God. Number two, am I allowing the victory on Hill Sea to give me a lens through which I look at every mountain ahead of me this year? Am Am I allowing this story to be the real story that is dominating every thought that I allow to control me, every decision I make to calm down every fear that creeps in. Take it and say, yes, Lord, that's my journey this year. His body was broken, crushed by the weight of everything in the world. Let's thank God that he did that for us.